Welcome to the Defence Forces podcast brought to you by the Defence Forces Public Relations Branch. Hello and welcome to the Irish Defence Forces podcast. My name is Captain Keen Clancy and today we're speaking to a member of our Ordnance Corps and Mr. Padraig O'Connor, Managing Director of RIMDA, who in partnership with the Defence Forces have developed a new explosive ordnance disposal robot, the Reacher. Welcome on to the show, uh, guys. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I suppose what we want to get, first of all, is we just want to get a bit, of, bit about your own background. So, um, so as a member of the Ordnance Corps, can you give us just a breakdown of your own career thus far? Yeah, I suppose I'm 23 years in the Defence Forces. Uh, on commissioning, I was commissioned to the Cavalry Corps, where I spent uh, seven years until joined the Ordnance Corps in 2006. Uh, since then, I've had a number of appointments both at home uh, and overseas um, with the Ordnance Corps, and currently I'm based in Ordnance Base Workshops uh, located in the current camp. Okay, and, and yourself, yourself, Paul, just brief on, briefly on your own background. Uh, plus my qualifications are in electronic engineering. Um, my initial career would have been in the railway industry, in particular the, the safety equipment in the channel tunnel. Um, <clears throat> afterwards, I, I developed um, uh, as a as a as a contractor, I developed some uh, radio communications equipment that I sold to the uh, security industry, and. And it was after in the late nineties that we really started to get into the whole robotics uh, side of things. Okay, right. And I, what we're here to talk about today is is it ultimately is the new um, platform that we have for um, the explosive ordnance disposal robot. But to give people at home a kind of a context, we might first go into say the broad history of remote operated vehicles in explosive ordnance disposal, and maybe in the defence force as well, and what kind of previous uh, platforms we might have operated. So. When was the genesis of um, robots using bomb disposal? Uh, well, from my, my, my own memory, um, I think the very first EOD robot was uh, was conceived and developed by uh, uh, by an army officer. Uh, I think his name was um, uh, Colonel uh, uh, Philip Miller. Um, again, the the uh, EOD is a dangerous business and. Uh, Without the EOD robot, the uh, EOD officer has to has to deal with the, the job in person, and uh, to render devices safe. I mean, the, the yeah, well, I suppose the, the, the key thing behind behind the ROV or uh, remote operation platform or vehicle is to put as much distance between the operator and the actual device as possible. Uh, standard EOD procedures would be to what's called disrupt or carry out a controlled explosion on a suspect device. Uh, we have a number of weapons that are able to do that, um, which are essentially, I suppose, an explosive or a high-powered water pistol. It's uh, um, a steel tube that can fire a jet of water out onto a suspect device. This is what we refer to as a disruptor, disruptor. For, the, for the duration of the podcast. It'll, it'll yeah. actually disrupt the device or, I suppose, take control of how the device functions. And traditionally, it's done in um, a semi-remote uh, means, which is the operator has to don the bomb disposal suit, walk up to within, I suppose, a metre of the device and place the disruptor, retreat back to a safe area, move back to a safe area, and then fire the disruptor. Um, the issues with that is you don't know when the device may function, if it's a time device or something along those lines. So even approaching the device can be hazardous. So obviously, if we're able to get something that can essentially bring the disruptor up to the device for us, it makes things uh, an awful lot safer. If it functions while the disruptor or the, the ROV is up there, you're only losing the ROV and not the operator. So I suppose that's where and that's where yeah. the, it, 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 it first developed in the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And it, it was, I think it was 1972, uh, the Colonel uh, developed the machine, but it was, uh, yeah, it was very basic in the early days. I think he, he literally went his own workshop or shed and um, he found a, a motorised wheelbarrow stroke lawnmower and he adapted it uh, with, with controls and a, a tether so that it could be operated at a distance and um, uh, put the uh, disruptor cannon onto it and again it was that was probably the first deployment of a <coughs> of a disruptor on a on an ROV platform and he was he was in the he's in the British Army as opposed well, to the white confusion yeah um, but we were it was the same motivation for his uh, development of the the British Army developed the first uh, disruptor cannon it was a it was a the pig stick and the hot rod uh, they, they they still own the the patents and those yeah devices, to my knowledge 
and uh, but the, the way of deploying them safely on, a, on an RCV remote control platform, uh, remote control vehicle, sorry, um, was it was and, and the name stuck with the machine. Um, it was uh, started off as like I said a, a motorized uh, wheelbarrow, but it even I think it was the the machine didn't finally get retired until about I think two thousand and ten, and they're still in service. Uh, but it was all the different variations through the years. But it wasn't just stayed there; it wasn't just taking that long off the shelf at the end. It was no, advanced significantly. It stopped being a wheelbarrow. It, it, it physically the, very early in its development, but I think the Irish Defence Forces uh, uh, had some of those early machines. And um, but they again being the innovation was was was, was e- equally optimistic here, and they 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 needed uh, to customise the solution. And they, yeah. wanted, they wanted more. Not the same was happening across the water, but um, but basically that's when they approached the uh, <clears throat> um, a, a company that made uh, uh, Russell Wind Technology that made a, a underwater robots for um, uh, cleaning at the hulls of ships, mm-hmm. uh, the, and um, they were approached to see could they what could they do? And now the wheelbarrow was tracked, whereas the hobo, which uh, is the, which is the name that really looms large, I suppose, Irish across Army. the history. Yeah. Yes, the original uh, the homegrown robot in in. The Irish Defence Forces would have been the hobo, and uh, that's where. And now they had a machine at the time um, for laying cable, I think, or something on the seabed, and it was a. It was, think of it as a giant hobo. It was a six-wheel machine, but they literally took that same principle and shrunk it down to a machine that was practical and similar in size to the wheelbarrow, and um, and that was in I think it was in '79 mm-hmm. that the hobo, uh, the first hobos, turned up. They were uh, again, they were basic. Um, the black and white tube cameras and they were simple tether control again very similar to the to the other machine but then like you know the over the years and as technology evolved the machines evolved with it and yeah. uh, the capabilities increased and there was a, several milestones uh, along the way as technology changed I suppose one of the key things as well with it is the wheelbarrow or the first ROV would have been developed in response to the troubles and right, what was yes. going on on island so uh it, it was actually, I suppose, interesting that they were developed in on our, for Ireland, in Ireland as well. And obviously then in 79, the first hobo came into service in the Defence Forces just prior to the Pope's visit. Okay, and right, yeah. It essentially stayed in service up until uh, March 2019. So obviously, in but in, in varying forms, we went down various upgrades. But just from a very basic level... Like the kind of specs that we're talking about for for the hobo, as in what what did the, what did the original hobo offer? Like what what was what were the, the advantages of it in say in comparison to the wheelbarrow? What was it what was it doing? Like well, the biggest difference would have been the the track that it was wheeled as opposed mm-hmm. to tracked. Now there's there are two camps. There's uh, the like you know, there's advantages to to tracks, but there's advantages to the wheels. It just depends on what you typically use the machine for the. the uh, like, you know, the, the wheels are simpler and need less maintenance and uh, can handle uh, rougher terrain and that it's because they're pneumatic um, the and track, I think that's probably the key yeah. again for 79 again where devices were being placed during the troubles would have been the border would have been on fields you would have been looking at firing points uh, that would have been difficult to get to so therefore the likes of a wheeled vehicle would have met the Irish specs better yeah. Than a track vehicle. I suppose the biggest bombs were probably correct me if I'm if I'm wrong here, but it would have been the the keg bombs, which were you know the, your kegs yeah. filled, filled with explosives, put in boosts of cars, and if a, typically if a car could get there, a wheel machine could get there. Yeah. And uh, and that's that led to the strength of the machine as well. Had to, in addition to be able to carry the large disruptor cans, it had to be able to uh, once it had uh, rendered the or rendered the device safe, it still had to just empty. The explosive out of it, and so the in addition to getting the forcing the boot of car open, they had to be able to remove these large cakes full of explosives and 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 dispel the. the uh, so, so it needed like a lift a lifting capacity and and reach. Uh, and, and, and reach it as you say, and I suppose for for a lot of people they would have actually probably seen maybe maybe on the news when when the explosive ordnance disposal teams go out, they would see images of of the hobo, and and it's it, it is that it's six wheels and and a large arm with a kind of a claw on the end of it, and so what it looks like. That, that was everything that differentiated it from the wheelbarrow. The wheelbarrow spoke stayed with the disruptor throughout the years. It had a very small um, claw, and generally it was for cutting wires and stuff. It it never had a, whereas the, it was. 
the multiple disruptors on the front of the on the front of the wrist section. Um, whereas the hobo had a very large uh, gripper, we call it, or claw at the front, which was again for lifting and dragging. Like you know, because everything like you know, things were not always easily accessible. Like so, um, um, you'd have to get, again, like I said, get the kegs out of the car or pull something out of a ditch someplace. So yeah, it was. You know, needed not only the disruptor capability, but the, the power and the strength to manipulate its environment. And it, all, it also carried a camera from, from day one, there was a camera on it. Yes, yeah. and there would have been a number of add-ons throughout the years as well, I suppose, additional cameras, but the likes of a shotgun. So again, if you're trying to get access to a vehicle um, with the homo, you could carry essentially weapons in the claw. But after you, you had to fire that weapon, you didn't have the ability to put the weapon down manipulate something with the claw and pick the weapon back up again. Okay. So we found again that the likes of trying to get access to a vehicle to get through the windows, if you had the weapon in the claw, you had no method of, of actually breaking the window. So a shotgun, again, being able to remotely be fired, was put on the, the arm to allow you to get access to the vehicle. Okay. To then be able to get maybe your shot on the suspect device or what you were looking to actually disrupt. Okay. So I suppose, well, just to bring it back for a second, just for, pe- for people at home, I think it's important to emphasize the sheer power of, of, of these disruptors that they're it's not just like it's not just like a super soaker, it's a it's a really powerful thing. Yeah. So again, there's I suppose three sizes of disruptors that we currently have. Uh, you'd have the what's called a needle, which would essentially be used for small, maybe postal devices, so something in a cardboard box. Uh, you're talking this will, as I said, rip open the cardboard box and disperse or disrupt any of the contents, electrical uh, circuit boards, batteries, etc. That, that may be in a device. The next one you'd have then is the pig stick. This is a slightly larger one. You're talk- this will open up a backpack. So again, your normal kind of school bag, even with the likes of clothes or stuff uh, or padding in it, it'll be able to, to rip open that. And then you have what's called the improved, which is the largest of them. Um, it will, I suppose, open a small suitcase or be able to go through it. It'll break open a timber box. It's a really powerful and, I suppose, kind of violent uh, method of, of opening it. Uh, yet at the same time, it's controlled because of either the bracket you're holding it in or the fact that you can aim it. So essentially, and the jet of water that's coming out from it is controlled. It's not omnidirectional. It's essentially point focused. Okay. So it's while extremely powerful and as I said, kind of violent, it is an extremely effective way of disrupting uh, suspect devices or AVs, okay, explosive devices. Yeah, and as you say as well, you were mentioning a second ago, Paul, just the advantage as well of, of another advantage of the robot is that it, it can stabilise a disruptor and prevent it from... Well, yeah, well, I mean, the, you mentioned improved, we noticed the hot rod. I mean, the, that's something like 36 kilonewtons of force. Like, I mean, if, you, if I gave you a sledgehammer and told you hit, hit something with it, you wouldn't even manage a fraction of that. So just yeah. to give you an idea of the, the power, and when you deploy it in a bracket, bear in mind a man has to carry the bracket if he's deploying it manually, and so that bracket isn't heavy to begin with. So when they, dis- when they fire manually, the, the disruptor is jettisoned because of the recoil force, and it can end up up to 100 yards away. Yeah. And whereas when you deploy it with a large, say, 450-kilogram EOD robot, the machine has enough mass and, and strength to actually stop the disruptor from flying away but even then we have to put in special damping systems uh, yeah. to stop it to disrupt the recoil of the disruptor from damaging the from damaging the, the robot itself uh, we have some famous photographs of the damage that the disruptors had done over the years to the even the hobo machine like it hit, hit the uh, back of the wrist and it was just completely deformed yeah even even when we done the the change out in reacher and we're putting in the reacher brackets holding the, the entire disruptor. But a lot of the reaches had to be changed from all the years of uh, of impacting with both the robot and, and even when they, they fly away, when they hit walls and eventually come to land, there were uh, there was dints and scratches and marks and gouges. So. Okay, right, so, so it's, very, it's a very kinetic kind of... It's, yes. it's an explosive charge that you're simply putting behind the water. Yeah. So again, when you hear the, the likes of the terms of controlled explosion, it is essentially deploying a disruptor. Okay, right. 
And, and I, that's something I'm sure a lot of people kind of listening wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have known before. As regards to like, improvements going up from, say, the initial, say, the Mark 1 sort of hobo that, that the Defence Forces would have operated, a lot of the initial improvements would have come from the uh, command system. So initially it was tethered. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I suppose the first main one probably would have been uh, moving to radio controlled. Mm-hmm. Again, it was probably analogue. Yeah, simple, 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 simple radio control and analog video, and uh, bear in mind, and if anybody remembers back to the early seventies and late seventies, the I mean the te- televisions were still televisions were still black and white, and uh, small portable uh, video cameras were unheard of. I mean, it was a novelty to see yourself in, on on a, on a television screen. <laughs> it was so uh, a lot of the cameras. Again, they were tube-based, like, and uh, by tube-based, I mean there, were, there was a glass, literally glass electron tube inside the camera that had to, uh, that that literally converted the light into a, into a, into an electrical image. But bear in mind, uh, glass and, and thirty-six kilonewton disruptors don't don't mix very well. So even these cameras, when they were aiming the disruptors, they had massive dampening systems to protect the camera because the camera would be destroyed if the recoil force of the disruptor came anywhere near it. Yeah. And uh, again, they were black and white in the days and uh, they, you had to be careful uh, with sunlight. If, it, if the camera ever saw any sunlight, it was destroyed like it. So, um, so the camera would have been a very big thing. You had to see what you were doing. And, uh, and then over the years, colour turned up and uh, obviously the radio started to improve. And then... Uh, like you now in the 90s we saw uh, space age technology like the CCD charge couple device cameras people think of it easy as everyday words but back then it was groundbreaking stuff that only like, you know, was, the, the knock on yeah. effect for the operator was increased range and better uh, situation awareness Yeah. so the improved so, cameras meant that we had colour we possibly it went on with zoom the possibility of pan and tilt cameras where you're now able to, to have 360 view of your area without actually having to move the, the hobo and also the increased range. I think when the tethered system you were talking about probably 50 to maybe 100 meters uh, but again you had a cable being dragged behind the, the, the robot whereas now moving on to RC you were able to was kind of go around corners you were able to go further you wouldn't uh, get snagged or stuck exactly. in a, in a, in a and, protrusion and you know even the likes of of going through ditches etc like that and using i suppose the full capabilities of the hobo were beginning to be realized as the the technology i suppose advanced with even today tethers are still used in incidences where you have a maybe electronic countermeasures where the signals have been radio signals have been jammed, yeah. Then again, they revert to tethers, both uh, both copper based and, and fiber, yeah. In, in those cases, um, but again, the radio radios over the years have, have, have improved and, 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 and like we would have said in, in the discussion before, and, and you made a point that like with regard with regard to the analog, and I think it was you just said a product that like, because if you have five percent single for an analog system, then you have five percent of of quality. Yeah. Um, but we moved in in two thousand seven to digital disimproves and, and and you have well, more on that. Digital signal once you have a once the link is active, yeah, again I mean you can have a like, you know five or ten percent signal and you still have a hundred percent video yeah. quality. It's an all or nothing scenario. It's like a, if I gave the analogy of when people changed over from the uh, analog phones to the to the digital phones, like you know from the O eight eight if anyone remembers to the from the O eight sevens and the like you know, the, the GSM. Uh, phones start to turn me up. It's the same energy, like you know. Can you hear me now? Start to think. Yeah. It's, it's a. It's like you know, you you could just about make out something in analog, but with, with digital, it was perfect, 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 and then gone. There was nothing. Okay. Right. But, yeah. Uh, and that was, again, that was a bit of a learning curve as well for the for the defense forces and and the UD robot because it, with the analog system, you got some warning when you were moving out of range. The snow began to come across the screen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> another thing, another problem with, uh, I won't get too technical, with, with, uh, with, with uh, radio transmissions and that you get reflections. People will notice them from the end, from their televisions of old, they see uh, ghosting images, double images on the screen. And uh, those, those robots had exact same problems, even worse because the robot was moving. So, uh, and, then, and then the, the video frequency has been very high up in the microwaves. Um, like you know, well above uh, say say one gigahertz, uh, you had more reflections, and, and those reflections cause a horrible thing called multipath when a, a signal uh, would come in, say one hundred and eighty degrees out of phase, and cancel the and they mix together with the, with the original path, and cancel 
cancel your picture and so you'd be driving along and next thing you'd, you'd, your picture would disappear and come back and disappear and come back and, and it would which is not ideal if you're on an operation and you're actually trying to distract massive uh, implications for EOD tasks because you had to be able to rely on your equipment and if you felt that the image you were getting back was not the image that was up there you couldn't take the shot so therefore you essentially had to render your your well, ROV or hobo you know, kind of useless and put on the suit and go up. And, so, risk, and risk the and operator it, themselves. Exactly. Yeah. And I suppose, again, as kind of as we were building towards 2007, the likes of Wi-Fi and signals in cities were greatly increasing. Again, during the early part of it, there would have been very few interference or very little interference among those frequencies. The spectrum was open back then. Whereas now... Yeah. I mean, most... I mean, even mobile phones didn't turn up in mass to the 90s, like in the... I mean, if you look at your mobile phone now, the, even the normal mobile phone, the amount of uh, different you have GPS on it, you have uh, Bluetooth, you have uh, Wi-Fi, you have the actual two different phone bands. It's a, a, a it's a mini broadcasting station. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. so and then and then you take it like you now. There's thousands of people walking around with them. Like, now, that's the reason the band on planes. One one phone on the plane wouldn't be an issue. But you, if every passenger on the phone is every passenger on the plane is using their phone, then it is an issue because then you've a couple hundred passengers all with these mini, mini broadcasting stations, and then that becomes an issue. Yeah, so but, that's, uh, that's why you're supposed to move to digital became a necessity from from the well, audience's point of view. The digital gave advantages in that it, uh, first of all, that multipath issue I mentioned, it, it, it got rid of that because the the um, especially the the Cofton modulation. I want to go too heavily into the acronym, but basically. It had a way of, of, it could use the first of all, it could use the reflections. There were no, there were no longer interference. It could uh, because it always used diversity of reception. So I could say, right, this one's in trouble. I'm gonna switch to this antenna. And uh, so it, what was originally a problem and causing interference was now adding extra data that the it could recover the signal from. But also just to jump back to the earlier times and solutions in the in the as as, as, as we mentioned, uh, the earlier always had tethers. But even in the nineties. If the operator top was any, his, he almost, he would almost deploy with with tether. And because because and RC was used was used a bit unreliable. Like. Well, exactly. Yes. Yeah, he couldn't if he any job at all, he'd deploy on tether. And it was the same with uh, whether it was fiber or copper tethers, they would deploy on tether, and the radio would be would be the fallback. Right. Or okay. Be, if he absolutely knew it would work, or if he was going through difficult terrain, he'd try the radio. But he'd, he'd normally just to be sure it would work, it would be the tether. Whereas these days. I think the tethers, even even in the the audience workshops in, in the Korea, I think they're they're kind of a relic. They're not. They're, they're, I don't. The, I can't the old phrase of the cable was stable. It's kind of gone a bit, yeah, yeah. That the reliability of the digital has increased so much, and I suppose that really around that time of two thousand seven was when I suppose Rinda first really kind of came in to be. I suppose kind of. I didn't nearly say partnering the defence forces in relation to the robot development. Well, it's the original company that 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 had um, had developed the the hobo. They'd been bought up by a by an international company and moved, so that left the. Now I was there. Well, I I developed I developed most electronics and the under the, the the final versions of the hobo, and so that left a void. Which uh, I mean I we, like we we left they, when they moved out the divide and we we kind of took over mm-hmm. and uh, that's when was formed in 2001 but it, when he really came to, to power like in the 2004-2005 is when we really started developing the, uh, the the technology for the robotic control but um, and the, the hobo with the hobo uh, we, it's called the, um, the, the H- H- hobo life uh, extension HME yeah it was, that was the acronym given to it um, but it was a way of they called it that because the idea was eventually a brand new robot. But what I wanted in the meantime was a was a stopgap to give them time to think about exactly what they wanted. It's like an upgrade of, yes. of the whole. Yeah, well, I suppose at the time market research would have been conducted uh, in relation to, but I suppose in partnership with the yeah. Department of Defence, as we were looking to see. Could it was there something out there that we could replace the hobo with? What were other nations mm-hmm. using at the time? There would have been an awful lot of developments going on and new robots coming online, but there were prototypes and didn't fully meet what our requirements were. 
So we looked at, right, let's extend the life of the hobo uh, through the digital upgrade and essentially buy us a bit of time that we can see uh, what's coming down the line and where to work from. And at the, just to jump onto the back to the radius for a second, the, the, um, there was a people at the time like, like were getting used to digital television and, uh, and digital satellite. Mm-hmm. But um, a small group of engineers from, uh, from Tansberg Television broke away and formed their own company called uh, Domo in the UK and they developed the world's first um, narrowband digital video transmitter primarily for broadcast and and uh, and, uh, and security and we, we were with them during the year I found them um, by, almost by accident uh, one of the, the I knew the managing director but uh, and uh, we tried out the, their original prototypes the, there was the initial, initial one was the A-Link and then after that the solar range came online but we were the no, the Irish, well, because we used the the first commercially available uh, digital video, it was important to have low latency as well. Latency is the time for something happening to when you see a change on the on the on your on the monitor on the yeah. television screen. So for robot control, that had been like now had to be. I mean, it had to be immediate. Yeah. You couldn't. But yeah. Under I found that like anything under hundred milliseconds, you get away with. Yeah. Anything more than that, and it became difficult to control the machine because. You'd, you'd push a switch or a joystick and there'd be delay until you saw what would happen. Yeah. If it, something would happen, then there'd be delay until you see what And it, was, it became kind of distracting. And uh, so, um, but the, the, like I said, the, 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 the solo link from, from, uh, from Domo was phenomenal. It was absolutely groundbreaking. And um, now at the time we were, we'd stripped the hobo completely. I mean, back, back to bare metal. Literally, we, we sandblasted them. Like, I mean, with every bit of wiring and every single piece of electronics was removed from the machine. They were stripped back to their to, to empty holes, mm-hmm. and with the exception of the hydraulics and, uh, and the motors. But and then we rebuilt them with, uh, with modern day electronics. I mean, we adapted the, mod- the automotive standard of uh, CAN bus architecture for the machine control. But we also implemented the the, the new radios uh, made by made by Domo. And uh, again, the just uh, sunlight readable uh, screens because it, and, and, and the control, control station and uh, uh, touch screens and uh, I mean two screens in the whole world. The other one was the was the, the GUI, the graphical user interface, and the, the large screen was the was the video screen. And uh, but just uh, but the the first deployment of, uh, of digital video, uh, okay. we got the nickname Coffin, which is the which is actually the modulation technique, but. Uh, was the was the hobo was yeah. the first machine to our knowledge at, uh, because we, we <laughs> because DTC were the first as I Domo at the DTC now were the first to develop it yeah and we worked with them to to fine tune it for RCV use so that's how we knew that <laughs> that we were the first because uh, within a couple of years they were the, they, they were known worldwide they were the standard yeah, and yeah. Even, and even, even if you found another company selling a uh, a digital video radio, I very quickly trace its its lineage straight back to straight back to that original. One. And he said as well, part that it, it can it can access military channels as well was was a big advantage. Yeah. You, you, as as uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and uh, and uh, became more and more popular and, and mobile phone devices be, like you know became something that everybody had. The uh, what we call the ISM frequencies, the industrial scientific and me- industrial scientific and medical became very congested and they had a like, you know, they had a very they had like I said they had a very uh, the devices can work with each other within that because they, they, they share the space but if you've got a, a radio that if you've an, an opportunity as I a requirement that absolutely requires dominance in other words you do, if you're operating in, in EOD robot you don't want to be trying to okay let's let's see if we have a if there's space in the spectrum here can yeah. this you need a band open that you, you need can use you need a military frequency that you can use and that was the other big advantage we're going with the with the, the, the Domo radio and that it could it had those military bands available and so that you always knew you had the you had the road to yourself so to speak when you needed to deploy your machine yeah and there was no question of, uh, of, of congestion great so the digital hobo uh, contract was basically awarded between the 2006-2007 and this upgrade to digital 
it, it identified issues with, with the platform that, that the ordinance call would have looked at? Yeah, well, I suppose once it came operational in 2007, uh, as an operator, we found now we could actually see more, you had longer range, uh, and the amount of improvements that we now had through, I suppose, the digital aspect of it highlighted a number of shortcomings from the mechanical end in relation to, as it was hydraulics, it meant that your, your movements weren't as refined or as controlled as we felt they could be, or as you could now see on the screen. Uh, it also, I suppose, identified shortcomings with um, its, its capabilities or its abilities to, to say, get under vehicles, etc. like that, because of the cameras uh, on the wrist increased the wrist profile, which meant that essentially it was a blocky, a blockier wrist that you couldn't get as far in under. So we worked with Reamden in relation to developing what was called the Remote Deployable Platform, or the RDP, which essentially was also in response to, I suppose, an increase in the number of pipe bombs that were been placed under vehicles in Dublin. So this allowed us now to place a disruptor on a smaller uh, robot, essentially a, a, a mini robot, and to be able to carry it up with the hobo and then deploy it closer to the vehicle so it was able to actually drive under the vehicle and be able to get a shot onto the pipe bomb or whatever had been placed uh, or the suspect device in or around the car. Uh, we also looked at, I suppose, using kind of the, the, the similar digital radios to be able to create an, what is the RDIP, uh, which is the Remote Deployable Independent Platform, which essentially was a camera system, uh, nicknamed the Jack in the Box, which you were able to bring into, we'd say, the likes of a building, bring it up the stairs and deploy it so that you now had visibility on if you deployed a disruptor, you could confirm the disruption or be happy that the device was now separated. Uh, so it gives you a wider field of view, is it? And it, it, it gives you a full 360. So essentially what you had on it was a pan and tilt camera that was on uh, essentially a, a stand, a tripod that could essentially be uh, brought up to whatever height you wanted and go up to about six or eight foot and it would give you situational awareness from your command post as to what was happening and to be able to look around to see, as I said, you could confirm your disruption or was there anything else in the room that, that you need to be concerned about. you need about. to look at, yeah. We also put that onto our truck, so essentially you put it on a hydraulic mast so that when you drove up to a, um, a situation, you're actually able to deploy this camera and it allows you, again, the whole idea is separating the um, operator having to approach a device. So when the, something has been found at suspect, we'll get a cordon in place, so essentially no one is allowed inside that area within about 100 metres of the, the device. We now can use the camera to look at it, focus on it, confirm with any witnesses or the guard that this is the actual suspect device before we deploy the robot or the operator up to it. Yeah. So again, it, it I suppose, sped up our response time and ensured that the witness didn't give us, I suppose, a kind of a, a wrong directions or a wrong description of the device. We were actually able to bring it up on the screen. Ask them, and, is, and, is, and is, check is, is this what we're, we're concerned with? And this is all feeding into information up. picture. Exactly, yeah. There's an interesting one as well, I suppose, with regard to the remote deplo remotely deployable platform, um, which harks back to what we were talking about earlier about the sheer power that a disruptor generates yes. and that was a challenge for for Reamden developing the smaller because platform we were, we were a bit, i mean we were a bit naive in that the uh, i mean the hobo was a was a big 300 kilogram machine and it was like you know it had like um, rams controlling the arms and it was, you know it was, it was pretty rugged and mm -hmm. it was hard even if you did break something on it it was easy enough to fix because it was very basic and uh, so then we started to uh, put the big stick disruptor which is a big disruptor in itself onto the RDP that we realised the RDP is a small robot it weighs about 15 kilograms what does it look like just brought it from a visual perspective uh, for people, for people a, I mean if you the easiest description of an RDP would be a, a, like a briefcase like a driving briefcase a briefcase on fast yeah with a big gun in the middle of it um, so again the, the RDP was, a, was a, like, a, like a box I mean it tracks it has a very low profile, I think about four inches, just to get under most cars. But then it had to elevate the, the disruptor once it got under the car. Once it found the, the device, it had to elevate the disruptor. But then, like now, even the pig stick, like or 30 kilonewtons of, of recoil force into a small 15 kilogram machine, we quickly learned that uh, 
something was going to give. Yeah. So we had to design the, go back to the drawing board and, I mean, there were several versions of the ADP before we stopped breaking them with the disruptor. Yeah. I mean, even, even, even the, the final machine at, at times would go, would go airborne once the, once the weapon fired, but we couldn't, the idea was to retain the weapon and not let it uh, fly away from the, from the, from the machine. But and also that the RDP wasn't going to be a single use. Oh yeah, we wanted yeah, this wanted to, to be able. It would be very easy to make a single-use deployable system, which means you fire it once and it's destroyed. Yeah. But obviously, with budgetary concerns, from a cost like that, the cost yeah, effectiveness, so. we needed something that we'd be able to deploy on multiple occasions. Uh, plus, our list of demands went on. We wanted cameras. You know, we wanted certain profiles. Yeah. We wanted uh, battery life. So we were feeding all this into Rinda, and essentially yeah, getting them to come up with, with the, the, the well, final product. The number of challenges, you've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other, you went from a huge machine where you had loads of space for everything, mm-hmm. to a tiny machine where you had no space for anything, and they wanted four cameras, front lights. and back, uh, up, and weapon camera, and wanted lights, they wanted uh, radios, uh, tracks, they had to carry the, the disruptor, obviously, and, um, and survive. So yeah. I have the whole thing, but also that that lets you and the ability to carry, to climb up small inclines as well. Yeah, so steps, yeah, nice small step, stuff like this. Any one of those, any one of those in itself would have been a challenge. But then to make the matters worse, because the RDP couldn't snag on anything, it's gone under a very, into a very tight spot in a very tight area. We'd no place to put antennas. The right, antennas, the antennas have to be embedded into the machine, and then anybody with any bit of knowledge, the worst worst place to put an antenna is on the ground. So now we had a tiny antennas embedded within the machine, right four inches above the ground, under a big block of metal, like a car. Yeah. <laughs> so you couldn't have put the radios in the worst place, and we had to get the and we had to get the signal back nearly a like you know a kilometer at, at, at maximum range, so, but that wasn't going to work. So that's what the the hobo came into play, like in that it was it carried the little machine, but also the hobo robot stood watch outside the car and the little machine relayed its radio comes back through the through, through the hobo through, through the yeah, hobo so they're a symbiotic back. kind of relationship between well it was a, a modern child sort of thing mm. but it was but also the uh, um, like I said it, it got it there over rougher terrain I mean the RDP had four inches and I could climb small steps but it wouldn't be able to get over dikes or trenches or ditches so the, the big machine could carry it and uh, in, in addition I should mention in case I forget that the this was the first time EOD that a marsupial robot had been used uh, to, in, a, in an EOD application that we were the first to and just pure by, by pure necessity it wasn't a, it wasn't uh, any other reason than just it was born out of necessity yeah. that, uh, that the you know, two robots working together sharing the same frequencies and, and, and so the, the whole off also provided an, a, what we call a uh, a third person view of the like the hobo couldn't get under the car far, as far as the RDP could drive anywhere under the car but the hobo could put his claw claw camera on the ground and look in so often the the operator would not need to use the RDP's own cameras they could get an outside view from the big machine that was watching yeah. right next to it but it also and had to be controlled from the same console same console so again, we didn't want the second console to, to be able to control it, so uh, the or two console. operators, for example, exactly, yeah. And so essentially, the same console is you just switch across and you then and we control keep, it. We keep game. that intuitive, like you didn't want to confuse the operator, like so. We purposely on the on the being the main command console, the right joystick is always the drive, and the left joystick is always the pen and tilt. But for the RDP, we treated it as a a drivable camera platform. So you use the left joystick in the RD, for the RDP and the right joystick for the for the main machine because in a blink of an eye. You know, four o'clock in the morning, out in the rain, you'd mix them up. Yeah. So we had to keep make sure that it was, it was always intuitive for the operator to never confuse the two machines. The last thing you wanted to be doing is looking in through the camera of the RDP and wondering, so it's not driving, and you've other. If you're to run the whole into a wall or something. Yeah. machine driving off down the road. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it's an interesting one because it feeds into something that, that we were discussing before we started recording, which which is the advantages of having. For, for the defence forces being able to work with the company so that there's an awful lot of trial and error going on here in, in challenging environments and you've operators that are saying well on the, la- the last call out I was on this was a challenge can, can you do something that will allay this? Mm-hmm. Yeah well I suppose that's where the development then of the Reacher I suppose kind of came about or the, the mechanical upgrade of the Hobo and um, we had worked with Reamda 
as I said, quite closely. It was around 2012-13 that we realised that the mechanical upgrade needed to take place, essentially, while I suppose it was a bit like the hobo was a bit like Trigger's brush, in the sense everything had been replaced at various yeah. stages. It was approaching kind of 35 years in service, and we felt there wasn't much more we could be doing with the current platform. Um, but we knew we'd worked with, with, with Reamda in relation to this, and that they had the capability to, to be able to push it forward. Uh, obviously, as well, from uh, a financial side of it, we were working with the Department of Defence to see what was available out there in, in the market. And you were probably looking at in around a million euros a robot to buy an existing one that we felt didn't do everything we wanted it to be able to do. Yeah. So we were able to, I suppose, engage with, with Rinda and come up with a partnership where essentially we worked or ordnance based workshops worked with them in relation to developing it. So we would have started off at developing a chassis uh, that we were happy that could essentially turn on its own axis, was able to carry the weight, the motors were refined enough and controlled that we could do both travel at quite a, a large speed. I think it, it's restricted to probably a max of about 12, 13 kilometers if required. We have it down to just under eight at the moment, which allows us to, to travel a good distance. Again, trying to get the likes of the battery life, all this working, to then move on to developing the turret, the, the arm, the wrist, and the likes of the weapons brackets to be able to hold the force that we're firing. Yeah. Because again, with these, you, like the Reacher is able to lift over 100 kgs, uh, I think about 170 is the max we've tested. Uh, but it's also able to pick up a water bottle without crushing it. Yeah. So it's trying to find something that is quite strong and aggressive, but yet can be delicate and do fine movements. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's essentially what we spent with the last probably four years is uh, bringing this from concept and where myself and Padre probably had, and other members of the team too, would have probably had uh, differences of opinion in relation to what... The, the engineering aspects of the, the ROV should be doing versus, well, we're operational. This yeah. is what operationally we needed to be able to do. Balance. A complete balance. And I think had we brought, bought a product off the shelf, we wouldn't have been able to do that because we may have been able to do some slight modifications or bring it back and modify it ourselves or go to a company to modify it, but you're, you're modifying something. You're not it's getting not, yeah. bespoke. As you just mentioned that a lot of it was from lessons learned, and I mean we didn't. Uh, the the design of Reacher evolved over the years as in in conjunction with the all the testing and all the and again it was born out of necessity. I mean I'll, give, I'll just go back to the RDP just for one second. Um, Reacher is the first. I'll list a few key points of Reacher. Yes, yeah. makes difference. It makes it different from other machines, in uh, from competitors' machines. One was the. Uh, the first, the first idea of it to have an actual dedicated tool bay. The rest of the other machine didn't carry tools. They usually string them on the back of the machine as an afterthought. But an actual tool bay that opens up that you can change tools from. And that came from the RDP. The width of the tool bay on, on Reacher, because the hobo, remember I mentioned the hobo had to carry the RDP yeah. to the location. And remember our earlier conversation where we said when you're carrying a, a weapon or carrying a device that you, you can't use a claw. You can't use your claw. So that was an, a, that was a, a limitation that we reintroduced back into Hobo and carrying the RDP. It couldn't. You had to move something, and also if your RDP even at fifteen kilograms is quite light, but if you've got an arm extended with that weight swinging off it, it's stressful on the machine. If you like, imagine you picked up a you know five kilograms in your and put your arm out forward and then went running down the road with that. It's a it's it's going to oscillate and it's going to create stress on the and over time on, that on the that build up. It's going yeah. to cause wear and tear. Whereas, put put this machine into the tool bay until you need it. And the beauty about the RDP that it it applies automatically from Reacher, and that the the tool the tool bay every tool the tool bay has a takes a tool drawer, and that drawer is relative to the task. So if it's the RDP, the RDP drawer gets put in, and the drawer deploys, and the ramp it it drops the ramp down, and lets the lets the RDP literally drive straight out of Reacher, and again it relays the signals back just like it did with the Hobo. If it's a disruptor that you need, that you, then it's the disruptor drawer you put into Reacher. If it's the, the, the you know, you're deploying a spooler to detonate an explosive, 
then it's the spool of drawer you put in and so on and so forth. The beauty for us was that you can always cope with new drawers. Yeah. As the tests, it future-proofed it because as more tasks turned up or, and as, and then the, the Defence Forces would come back to us with ideas. Oh, well, okay, that, that worked very well. How about you, a bit of that and a bit of this and, and some of that and, and for another problem we're having. We'd like it's to see your own environment yeah. and to go in and take samples. The fact that you have a tray now that you can put essentially whatever you want into it uh, you're able to actually deploy the reacher into a possibly exactly. contaminated area, take a sample, put it into the drawer, bring it back, or take a number of samples and be able to put it into the drawer and bring it back. And store it, and yeah, essentially decontaminate yeah. the, the, the robot or the, the, the drawer, and now you have a sample that you can take away and, and actually send to a lab. Exactly, and another thing is that sometimes the tool is expensive. For example, uh, if you need to, on a rare occasion that they, that they need to take an X-ray or something, sometimes it's uh, if and, and again the colleague here will tell you more about that. But if you had a suspicious package, maybe on a like you know that you didn't you and you are to confirm a negative, you say right, we're pretty sure it isn't a bomb, but and we don't want to shoot it, blow it up in the airport. Maybe we'll take an X-ray to confirm that it's that it really is um, harmless. And real-time X-ray panels. Are incredibly expensive things. Like I mean, a, a real-time extra panel. I mean, they started about eighty thousand. Yeah. And they're made there, and the way they work is that you have a. a, a I won't get too technical, but literally they're like a, a, a sheet of amorphous silicon, and when when the X-ray beam sheet of amorphous silicon it changes into light, and then you have a you have a you have a sensor light sensors behind on the panel that that convert that to an actual image, an yeah. X-ray image. And it does that in real time, and the robot can transmit the picture back, but. Imagine swinging that off the front of a 450-kilogram machine driving down the road at 8 kilometres an hour. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a chance you want to drop it. Yeah. And those panels, uh, some of them can be dropped from, some of the newer ones you can drop them from, a, a, like, you, know, you can drop them from a metre and they might survive. But if you crack them off a silicon, because these things are completely sealed, then that's an 80,000 euro panel gone. Gone. Whereas your, your key concern part of those always separating the operator from the device. Yeah. It's, not, it's not money. Well, if you remove the threat yeah. or you remove the, the danger in the first place by putting, like, you know, put it in your, uh, put it in the tool tray until you need it. Yeah. It, 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 it's it it's the key the thing, yeah. as I said, there's no point in having the toolbox in the back of the truck if you as an operator still have to go down to the location beside the device and deal with it. So with the Reacher, um, it has the capabilities to add on. The tool drawer is, it, it's as limited as your imagination as what you can actually put into it and, and work with it. So it was the great thing again with, with working with Reamda was that we were able to, I suppose, identify the priorities that we wanted essentially working initially and then to be working concurrently with the likes of, as a spooler, which is essentially a cable reel to allow us to deploy uh, high explosives at a distance. We're firing it, it's not like you're firing the disruptor where the reacher will survive. If you're going to deploy the high explosives, chances are the reacher will get damaged. So this allows you to extend the cable to bring it back to a safe distance. Yeah. Uh, the sampling, all these kind of ones, the real-time x-ray, where you're actually able to, as I said, sit 100, 200 metres back, deploy up the reacher with a real-time X-ray system on it, take the picture, put it back into the, essentially the X-ray, back into the tool tray, and then either manipulate or carry on with, with what you want to do, with your task. Exactly, but just to follow on, on the, some things we developed for reacher turned into something much better later on. I'll give you one example, the, the tool tray, for example, the, the tool bay that I mentioned in the machine, we had now we'd been working with a with a with, with and the I mean remember at the start I mentioned the wheelbarrow. Mm -hmm. Now they they were originally produced by a company called Alvis. They got bought up by a company called Remitech, who got got bought up by Northrop Grumman. Now in the last version of of the wheelbarrow, they they used our command console. They bought it from us, and we we integrated it into the machine because they liked it. But we were there in their factory during the development of their wheelbarrow replacement called the Cutlass, and we were sitting down in the same. Um, canteens and talking with the engineers and we saw all the problems they had and um, one of them is tool changing is, is a nightmare <laughs> so you you make it as you don't if, if you have an arm with multiple degrees of freedom and you're trying to 
precisely lines up on a, on a tool before you grab it to retract it from its, its area, then there's loads of areas for error and they, they explained that to me and, and their solution was that they had a very complex um, computer system in the claw with, with machine vision that would recognize the tool and try and get the arm as close as possible and then the computer would take over and try and recognize the orientation of the tool and then through some very complex algorithms figure out the best way of picking, picking it up which is and then did I mention the 36 kilonewton uh, disruptor right up next to that expensive computer yeah that led to trouble <laughs> yeah so yeah. but we had the in hindsight hindsight's a great thing but in hindsight I said right we're not going to do that that, that, that didn't work we're, we're going to or that was got that, that expensive risky way of doing it so I said right okay for the tool tray I said right we, first of all we're going to have a dedicated tool area with dedicated drawers and dedicated brackets but still the last thing I want reachers arm is highly dexterous and would have all the same problems of lining up with the with a tool as the cutlass would so I said right okay we need a way of picking up the tool with the least amount of movement in the arm so I said we'll fold the arm down what we call the delta position lock everything down so that there's no movement and literally line the claw up at the front of the drawer and that's what we need a way of sliding the whole manipulator arm forward and backwards and that's what the idea for the sliding turret came in the sliding turret, uh, every robot has a turret, and the turret is the point at which the arm swings. It's like your, sh- your shoulder joint. It's the arm, point at which the arm can swing 360 degrees around the machine. Um, but the turret is usually, generally in the whole buttress in the middle, in the most machines like the cutlass and the wheelbarrow, it was towards the front. But it's always a balancing act because the, you need to, you need, if you put it in the middle, you get better, better balance, but then you don't get too much reach. Yeah. If you put it on the extremity, like the front or the back, you get more reach, but then you get machines unbalanced. And uh, so it's always a compromise. But in our case, we were—I was focusing on trying to get the tools out in one simple action, with no, without, without a complex arm movement. So that's what the sliding turret. Our turret could slide all the way from the front of the machine to the back of the machine. So we didn't have a fixed turret; it was, it was moving. Yeah. Now the advantage of that was mean, means that we lock the arm down into the delta position. It could easily line up with the tools because they're all in, in their most of the arm was in its home position. So we don't need the wrist up and down movement and the turret left and right uh, left and right rotation to, to worry about lining up the, the tool change so we didn't need a, a fancy camera yeah. we didn't need a, a, an advanced algorithm a, yeah. advanced algorithm running in the, in the claw but suddenly that was done to facilitate easy tool changing but then as the as, 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 as the defence forces started deploying the machine and testing me this is the sliding turret is a is a completely complete revolution in itself because if you get into a confined space, say you're going in a tight door or something like that, and you have to access something to your right where the machine can't turn, and the arm literally can't swing, you can move your turret all the way to the front of the machine, and now you can turn the arm and get access to an area that you could never access before. Yeah. yeah. In, in addition to that, so the, my last point is that the center of gravity in the machine for climbing stairs and stuff, the, the whole manipulator arm weighs nearly 150 kilograms by itself. And when you're trying to go up a steep slope or climb over stairs, the sliding turret now allows you to shift the machine's centre of gravity so that you can you can take full advantage. You can shift it, like, you know, like leaning forward yourself. Yeah. If, you're, if you're going stepping up in a, in a large step, you lean your body forward to so that you compensate for the yeah. you won't fall back into your back. We can do that now with the machine. You know? Yeah, no, they were the same points I was going to raise. Right. Like from an engineering point of view, things were done, and then from the operator point of view that may not have been considered at the time worked out brilliantly for us. So the likes of the, the being able to climb the stairs, again, you're worried about it essentially tilting backwards, move the center of gravity back over the back wheels, gives you greater traction to be able to actually get up the steps and to essentially to get to places where you can't well, you go. Could, you couldn't have gotten before. And I suppose a, a good was anecdote or example of that is from one of the more recent YO's courses. Again, they would have been the first course the young officers course that we would have done in the previous course. podcast yeah, yeah. Uh, again the directing staff or the the, uh, the the teachers will essentially try to put devices in locations that the students will have to be able to make an assessment and say right I won't be able to get the ROV into that position I'll have to get into the suit generally they're put just out of reach so that they're maybe you know trying 5-10 minutes to, to, to get the shot on knowing that the, the directing staff generally knowing they won't get the shot on so therefore they'd have to revert back to the suit the problem was when they started using the reacher 
they could get all the shots. So it turned out then that the directing staff were going, right, we'll, we'll just turn off your robot. You're yeah. not allowed to use that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the exercise has to be amended. Like, but it's, exactly, it's, it's yeah. an incredible vindication of the capabilities of the new platform that it's able to do these things. And, 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 and the, so this way that the, some of the development happened in that with the type relationship with the defence forces, these things were, were recognised very early in the design. And so if you think about it, one of the most unique features of Reacher is a sliding turret. Where does the sliding turret come from? Go all the way back to the the undercar requirement with the RDP. The RDP was a small machine that was carried by the hobo. So developing Reacher, we said, okay, the RDP has to come inside the machine. We deployed from the machine without tying up the without tying up the arm. The fact that we put it inside the machine meant we we had a good way way of getting it out, which meant that we had to be able to slide the turret out of the way. Yeah. And 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 we said, and then the tool drawer was defined by the size of the RDP, and we said, okay, now we'll be putting other tools in, so we need an easy way of changing the tools, yeah. and so the turret the turret turned up. <laughs> so it moves on, innovation moves on. To yeah, but I think, I think as well with the even the likes of those um, tests or kind of trials with it, and again all the work that was I suppose able to be done here in Ballymun and Barracks uh, was invaluable in the sense of being oh. able to work beside. Uh, reamed there beside their factory. So again, we would be testing here. If a small problem occurred, it was simply 10 minutes, they'd be able to come out and fix it, as opposed to driving up and down the N7 between OBW and Trilly here. Um, it just, it, it gave us a huge amount of freedom to be able to know that essentially we can push the, the robot as as far as possible. Yes. And that then essentially it was drop it back to, to Reamed that night, they'd do running repairs and simply draw it back to, to, yes. to us. And, and so you mentioned as well that, that probably the final big innovation for with the difference between the whole one to reach is, is the steering system. Yeah, uh, most EOD robots use uh, skid steering. To, that's, if anyone see, has ever seen the bulldozer turning, it's, it's the same principle that you run one side of run one track forward or one side of wheels forward and the other backwards and the machine doesn't turn either left or right. Now that's very that's very power consuming on a, on a on a system in that it's 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 the kind of you're tearing up the ground like it's 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 hard in in say in, on a smooth surface but if you go into a say into a field and the wheels go like you know go a couple of inches into the into the ground and now you attempt to skid steer then you're trying to displace all that that muck and earth out of your way um, to to turn the robot and it's it's creates a massive draw on the on the battery system which we wanted to keep. We're also on the few few machines at at a, at a four hundred fifty kilograms that uh, that can still use conventional batteries. A lot yeah. of machines have changed to now our small our small machines use lithium ion for the power density. Yeah, but, but I think this comes back to the engineering versus the operational. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah. with the likes of the skid steer, which is what the hobo would have been, we were used to it. We wanted to kind of keep it, but the problem was if we kept the skid steer, our operational time with the batteries dropped off massively. Yeah. So again, we went back to Rinda and said, yeah, look, this is great, but you need to come up with either prolonged battery life or an innovative method of being able to get the reacher from A to B using the minimal amount of power. Yeah. And that's essentially where the ability to steer the robot uh, came from. Well, originally, we'd, we the original drive motors we had in the and reacher were, were underpowered for the task. They were, with you know, about 600 newton meter in, in total uh, traction and we realized that it wasn't it was it was having trouble with the machine was so heavy like it's, it's a big machine whereas the whole like it's 150 kilograms heavier and we said right it's 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 draining the batteries in the in the turning so we we said we'd add we'd add a acumen steering acumen steering is the exact same way your car turns if you're imagine you're, you're driving in a gate and you just turn your steering wheel yeah. it's it's, it's there's no resistance. It does it with no no extra power required, and uh, so we said we'd add that to the back wheels of Reacher so that it could it could actually physically turn the wheels instead of tearing up the ground. Yeah. It could physically turn the wheels. Now that's an advantage in, in in power saving, but but and then we then ended up doubling the power of the of the wheel, of the motors anyway. So we took it from six hundred newton meters up to twelve hundred newton meters, and so the machine is. Machine. It's much more efficient and much more... But, and, but we kept the steering. It, yeah. It's what gave us, essentially, I think we were able to do, was it eight kilometres in just over 40 minutes yeah. over uneven terrain. So it gave us massive endurance with, with the Reacher and, as I said, allowed us to, to have the battery life to be able to complete any task that we were given. But, um, another advantage was that, um, again, all these things happen, happen just by... It's not that we planned it all. Uh, 
it, it's I'll give you another example if uh, um, it was mentioned earlier about uh, some of the tool trays we might be uh, might require uh, sample gathering or uh, CBRE um, exercises or, or tasks now the last thing you want to do if you've gone into a if, if you're not going to blow something up if you're going in to pick up something or, or gather evidence the last thing you want to do is go with a 450 kilogram bulldozer tearing up every time it turns so I mean reach a good drive across the golf course on on, that, on steering wheel and you wouldn't know it was there yeah you do the same thing on skid steer and you know every, you know exactly what you it know, was yeah because <laughs> it had big divots in the ground <laughs> from when it turned then you do a river running through the place and uh, so, so Reacher has been operational as of yeah, as of March, uh, St Patrick's Day, March two thousand and nineteen. Uh, the Reacher went, as I said, the initial operational capability, which meant it went onto the duty kit, and we received delivery of the last two Reachers uh, in May of this year. So essentially, it reached uh, FOC. But I suppose, like the the life of the Hobo, um, we don't see that as stopping. Uh, yeah. And the development of the Reacher certainly won't stop there as we require new tools or required to do new tasks or the likes of upgrading either the radios to what's called possibly a mesh system which will extend our range pretty much double our range uh, with the current tools we have uh, or as i said the adding the likes of hd cameras etc and as in coming up with maybe some of what's called the kind of the, the sexier stuff, <laughs> the fly-by-eye, you know, being yeah. able to control the arm with greater ease rather than... Okay, the, kind of finer control. And, exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, fan, fantastic. It, it really does appear that there's been massive leaps forward in, in, in between the hobo and the reacher, um, and there's a huge amount of information there and that for people at home. So thanks very, very much for coming on to the show. It's very much appreciated. As always, for further information on Irish Defence Forces, check out our social media platforms and military.ie. Serving members are also encouraged to check out the members area of military.ie. Today's episode was produced by Gunnar Paulick Sullivan and Sergeant Paul Keeley of the Defence Forces Audiovisual School. The Irish Defence Forces podcast is available for download on Spotify, iTunes, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with a new episode. To everyone out there, thanks for listening and stay safe.